Welcome back to Behold the Lion. This is the episode in which we tackle a rather long text. This is, are we going to say Augustine or Augustine today? People have been fighting over Augustine. that. Augustine. I'm an Augustine. Augustine? <laughs> Augustine? All right. Joel will say Augustine. Joel's back, by the way. Say hi, Joel. Good to be back. Good to be back. And we're joined by Madeline as Hello. well. Hello. Yeah, I am currently outnumbered by the Catholics in this room, and we'll be talking about church fathers, so we'll see how this goes. Oh, boy. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, here we are. We're talking about St. Augustine's City of God, and the City of God is written roughly AD 413 to 426, uh, and it's written in response to certain events, which we'll get into. We'll get into that context in a second, but uh, how would, uh, let me ask this to you guys. What would you say the, the book is about? Um, I was really excited about reading this book. And since I'm taking CC right now, I was the most recent person to have skimmed through it late at night in the library. Um, and it was really interesting to see just his approach on a lot of things. Um, it felt like he's covering a lot of topics. And I think that we'll get into that a little bit today. But he like starts out talking about the barbarian sack of Rome and then he moves on to like a discussion of free will. And then he talks, I think the most um, memorable image is the two cities. And I really love that comparison. And I'm sure we'll get into it more on this episode today. Yeah, I think it's a real good counterpart to confessions where you kind of see the individual story um, and this kind of self-reflective journey of faith, the struggle, the life of faith. Um, Augustine... Augustine, um, or Augustine, St. Augustine, um, then abstracts it and talks about it throughout the nature of history, throughout time, um, and throughout especially the history of Rome, um, throughout the first part, and then, right, as Madeline mentioned, the later part, City of God, City of Man, is a comparison more um, about these ideas in general and how they work through time and history, and it's kind of interesting to see how he goes from a journey of the individual to a journey of history, time, pedagogy, those sorts of things. Well, gotcha then. Uh, it sounds like it's a book a little bit about everything. It covers a lot of topics. It's a magisterial work, and you guys probably like the term magisterial. But <laughs> um, yeah, it is. Uh, but it's also a book written in response to a particular historical event, right? Madeline touched on it. In AD 410, Rome is sacked. It is ravaged by uh, a group of, we'll call them generally barbarians, but I believe they're Visigoths. I forget which type they are exactly. Um, but You're the classics guy here. This is right, your thing. Right. But yeah, it's sacked by these uh, outside invaders and a lot of bad stuff happens. People are killed. Uh, there is pillage, there is rape, there is murder, there is destruction of the city. And the Romans are left shaken by this. At this point, Christianity has become relatively widespread in the Roman Empire, but there's still a very large pagan presence as well. And many of the pagan Romans are troubled by what has happened, and they blame the decline of Rome on its departure from tradition, its traditional religion, its uh, traditional gods, and its uh, embrace of this new religion, Christianity. And so one of the real triggers for Augustine to write this text, to write the city of God, is as a direct response to uh, those claims. So let's, we'll see a little bit how he does that uh, as we go through it. 
But let's talk a little bit about the title, the city of God. Why does he call it that? Is there what's going on with that with that title? Um, there's two. Let me see if I can find the definition real quick. Um, he talks about two different cities, and in my class at least, we contrasted this a lot with um, the Colopolis and. Um, Philippolis, yeah, from, uh, uh, from, from Greek philosophy, the, the ideal city, right, as we saw in the Republic, for instance. Right, and so this is like a different, this is a very different take, obviously, since it's from a Christian perspective, on an ideal city. And um, you can find out a lot more about this in Book 11, as I'm sure people who will take CC will have to, have to get into so there's two there's two cities and in in book eleven you can see that um, there's there's the city of God and obviously as the the, the title would suggest uh, God God reigns supreme there and um, the citizens there are brought together by their love of God and then this is contrasted with the earthly city which um, is where people prefer their own gods to the founder of this holy city, which is um, obviously as Christians, that's, the, that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's a really big contrast in this book. And the earthly city is less, it's less of like a, a physical place, but more um, people that aren't, that aren't chasing after God or aren't desiring him. And so there's, there's a lot of talk um, in this, in like these passages about the citizens of the heavenly city. Sometimes they don't even know who they are, and you can't you can't necessarily know know that. But they're they're seeking the things of God. They're seeking higher things. Yeah. So we have this very strong image of these two cities, but in a temporal sense. And as we've said, time is a very important theme in a lot of Augustine's writing, and it is in the city of God as well. In a temporal sense, these cities are mixed together. You've got the citizens of the heavenly city participating in the earthly city, uh, participating, you know, in the affairs of this world. Augustine is not advocating that all Christians, for instance, up and leave and found a new, you know, heavenly city or whatever's going on here. Uh, but you've also got it's it's hard to tell it's hard to tell them apart. Sometimes they function together, but in the end, it's a question almost of sovereignty, right? It's who is in charge, who. Uh, who are these citizens looking to for meaning, for direction, right? Uh, who is the god of each city, effectively? And Joel, any thoughts on on this theme of the city? I mean, I think the reason why Saint Augustine is that just sounds weird for me to say. Augustine. I'm sorry. I'm still like I'm. I I just I'm a Saint Augustine guy. Um, They're both so, anglicized. You just have to pick one. Yeah, Saint Augustine. Um, but it's interesting that he, he picks a city, right? We, we associate cities with kind of places of political influence, of rule, of perhaps where rain is concentrated. Um, and I think he really, by having these two cities and exploring the relationship between them, which isn't necessarily so completely separate and completely impossible to reconcile or like completely disconnected in every way, it's more an, an ex investigation into kind of the tension at the core of the gospel, where you have both my kingdom is not of this world and uh, my kingdom is at hand, repent and believe. Um, and so the way that I think St. Augustine explores that in in his, in his in, in this tome of, of work is a great way to look at um, the Christian journey. 
It's worth noting that this notion of the city is a really important one, both in the ancient world, in the Bible in particular, right? right. You've got the, 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 the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, speaks of the coming city of God, the New Jerusalem. And throughout the ancient world, the city is often the defining unit of belonging, if that makes sense. We've, if you remember from your discussions of, say, the Republic and the ancient Greek polis, the city, that is where you are a citizen, that is where you belong, that is in some sense your nation. And for Rome, this is even more so the case than for many mm -hmm. other cultures, for many other societies. It's often said, uh, something I've heard said before, is that, for instance, if you look at the ancient Greeks, though they were so attached to their individual city-states, you know, Athens, Sparta, they had a cosmogony. They had a theory for how the world came into existence. If you look at Roman sources, you don't really find a cosmogony. You don't really find a defining story about how everyone came to be or how the world came to be. What you do have is an urbogony. You have a story of how Rome itself came to be. So Rome is very definitional to the Roman world. And so when Augustine sets up this notion of a better city, a heavenly city, as the author of Hebrews says, there's, he's striking really at the heart of what it means to be a Roman. He's striking really at the heart of what it means to participate in this world of cities. I think that that's a really beautiful um, comparison to the Christian life is unlike the previous cities or like political philosophies we've seen, the city of God isn't about coming up with an ideal political structure here on earth or about fitting people into various categories because ultimately God is the, the just judge and we don't, we don't really, we don't have to be concerned with that. And instead of this being like a, a, a theory, we are like currently... Our, like it's Saint, like what St. Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven. And so I think that there's a lot of beautiful parallels that can be drawn from this that can apply directly to our own lives. It's like if we see that um, we're not we're not supposed to fit into this world um, and we're supposed to be we're supposed to be striving for the, the things that are to come. And I think that that gives us that should give us a lot of hope and a lot of direction in our lives. I like that point, Madeline. I think there's got a, it's got a lot going for it. But I think one of the things that Augustine is doing in this text is dealing with this idea that, yes, if a Christian's primary, a primary identity is in heaven, right, is in this identification with this effectively belief system as it would have looked like to a pagan Roman, is that necessarily going to be harmful to social order? Is that going to lead to decline? Is that going to uh, fray away at the uh, Roman fabric of society? Because that's the criticism that he's facing here. Uh, and in some ways, you could see how to a Roman, the Christians were not willing to participate in some of the basic acts of Roman citizenship, right? Of showing honor to the emperor as quasi-divine, for instance. Uh, they were not willing to do that. And so he faces that criticism and in book one, he starts to address that, and he also starts to tackle some questions of what happened in the sack of Rome, some of the atrocities that were committed, and he tackles a lot of those difficult things, and what, what stands out from book one? How does he uh, address some of those questions? Well, I guess, first of all, I guess you, you just proved your point by <laughs> my defense of the city of God, um, and 
But one of the things that that at least my class discussed a lot was there's there's the story of this noble this noble woman Lucretia, I believe, um, who in a horrible situation she is um, raped by um, this man, and after like confessing confessing this, she kills herself, and this is. Obviously, this is a really tragic story, but for the ancient Romans, this was seen as like a noble act and even even like a glorious death. And I think this um, links with um, Plato's death uh, was I'm trying. I can't I'm not I'm not a history major, so I don't I don't. But there's this idea of like noble, noble suicide or noble death that Augustine is very much against. Perhaps not Plato, but Cato. Certainly, there is a Roman uh, statesman named Cato who is famous for his suicide as well. Big sorry to share. I forget if it was also if Cicero also killed himself, but there was there was there is a record throughout Roman history of um, suicides that were meant to preserve one's honor effectively. So yes, let's let's look at Book One for a second. Uh, faced with the criticism that. Christianity has, you know, led to this invasion by the barbarians. Augustine first points out that catastrophes happened before under the pagan gods, that moreover atrocities were committed in the names of those pagan gods, that lastly these barbarians spared people, whether Christian or pagan, who took refuge in the churches. And he says this is something that has not yet been seen in history. Uh, that's his argument, at least. We could talk more about that, but actually to get to uh, Madeline's point, uh, he does reference the story of Lucretia. This was seen as a founding myth of Rome because that event sparked the uprising that changed Rome from a monarchy to a republic, as the story of uh, as the story of uh, Roman history goes. And so, in some ways, very much baked into the Roman ethos were these questions of honor, death, you know, um, chastity, so on. And Augustine really has to deal with some of these questions because he has to talk about acts of sexual violence and rape that were perpetrated by the invaders. And he has to talk about some of the suicides that occurred as a result of uh, those acts and others. And he really cuts against the pagan ethic when he says suicide is not a lawful act. He says, for someone who was, you know, on the receiving end of incredible violence, you know, any compassionate person would understand the emotions that drove them to, to uh, end their own lives. But he also makes a fairly strong statement that to end one's own life is also not acceptable. And this really cuts against some of the uh, some, some some of the pagan ethics. Any other th any, any anything to add on that? I'm trying to remember specifics, but I know that in Augustine's criticism of this, he's very much um, like he's talking to, um, I think spe like his specific example was women um, in Rome, like w while these things were going on. And just this idea that even something like chastity isn't, it's not, th these aren't just like it's, there's more to the virtue than just like, like physical virginity. And he's talking about, it's this, St. Paul talks about that, how nothing, I'm trying, I don't know the verse, but it's how nothing can separate him from the love of God. At the end of Romans chapter eight, I believe. Yeah. And there, and just this idea that um, no matter what, 
it is done to us on this earth, we're still like even horrible things. Like we're still like God knows our hearts. And because of that, um, suicide is never justifiable. And I think that 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 can give people a lot of hope because even if they're the victim of horrible crimes, um, they're they're still of value, and they're it. That's not their fault, and they they don't bear the burden of that. And uh, I think that there's a lot of a lot of mercy and hope in that. Yeah, I think I like. I really appreciate the way he contrasts it with martyrdom and kind of points out the distinction between the two where he talks about martyrdom kind of as this great act of courage in we in our recognition of the situation that we're in and an unavoidable unavoidable route to death that the only way to avoid it would be to deny the faith right um, and so that as distinguished from suicide both of which show a kind of perhaps unconcern or impartiality towards the earthly life, but one in a kind of holy, hopeful way um, that your death can be beneficial for others uh, as a witness um, and, and to live in eternal life with God. The other out of a kind of despair, right? And inability to or desire to turn away from suffering, right? And, and that kind of um, has this distrust in the Lord, right, that he will provide and that this suffering is intentional and not um, not random and arbitrary. Um, and so though difficult, undoubtedly, um, it is worth taking up the cross um, as Christ instructs us to um, because our, our suffering is not meaningless or arbitrary or random, um, but rather... Uh, abilities to share and grow in our relationship with Christ. There's a quote, I guess going off of that, there's a quote that um, I've heard attributed to that that time, but that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the faith. And this was especially the case in early, early Rome, um, even before this with all the persecutions. And just this idea that um, because we don't belong to this world, because we're not, we're not citizens of this world, um, even though uh, we, we, we may vote and have social security numbers and all of that. Um, because of that, uh, there's, there's things that we are living for that are higher. And because of that, death doesn't, death doesn't affect our, our souls. And it can, it's, a, it's a beautiful um, beginning to um, the, the life that we were really made for in heaven. Yeah, to contrast this with the pagan view, and and to be clear, this these are very weighty topics, and that he's that he's tackling, and not all of the ways he addresses these sorts of issues are necessarily pal- palatable to a modern audience as they read through it, and there's a lot more that could be said here, but I want I do want to contrast this with a um, famous uh, Roman author Seneca, who was a Stoic, and in one of his uh, letters, he famously wrote about suicide as an ultimate assertion of the Stoic ideal of sort of control, self-control, one might say, where it's sort of your avenue out of any situation, unpleasant situation in in life. It's not that, you know, a minor inconvenience would drive you to that, but he spoke of you know, situations of dishonor, he pointed to historical examples of, you know, dishonor or cases of extreme sickness that made life, in his view, no longer worth living. And so um, 
And so he spoke of it in that way. And for Augustine, this ideal of sort of control is not quite the same. Again, he would say that our life is less ours to, you know, dictate as God's to dictate. And as Joel pointed out, while he does acknowledge the reality of martyrdom that to some people's eyes might look like, you know, a rushing toward death, um, there's a difference going on in terms of the action of the will in this. For Augustine, the idea of the will is very important. Uh, are, are you choosing to do this, you know, because it's forced upon you? Are you encountering death because it's forced upon you and there's no way out but to deny, to deny your true citizenship and your belonging in the city of God? Or are you just choosing to do it uh, as a means of asserting your own lordship, you could say, over your own life? Again, weighty questions. Uh, but I think this is a good point to move on to Augustine's idea of the will and Augustine's idea of, you know, human ability to make choices, right? Uh, we've talked, perhaps touched a little bit on this in Aristotle and other authors, but for Augustine, it gets really developed into an important concept because it's tied up with what he will call sin and also with what he will speak of as, say, virtue or faith or living a good life. So Ardashir is looking over at me because I'm trying, I'm flipping through, you know, the two inches of the city of God, trying to find a concise quote on Augustine's thoughts on free will. And I am not, not, not able to do that. Uh, so he has a lot, he has a lot of thoughts on free will. And I know that they've kind of been taken to the, you can have people who believe very different things about pre free will both use Augustine to defend their views. So I suppose that a lot of it's left up to interpretation, but the bulk of it is happens in book five when he's refuting um, Cicero's thoughts on free will. Um, and I don't know if either of you guys want to speak to that. Despite my classics major, I'm not all too familiar with Cicero's thoughts on this topic. So yeah, we'll, we'll stick with Augustine for today. Yeah. I've had for assuming you're an omnipotence on all things <laughs> relating to the ancient Greeks. Yeah, I don't know too much about, say, Cicero's thoughts or the ancient Greeks' general thoughts in free will, but as far as I recall, Augustine tackles this question in a couple different ways. He talks about whether angels have this will. He talks about also uh, the uh, first humans, you know, the idea of the story of the Garden of Eden, right? and the choice that was made there uh, to, to obey God or to disobey him, rather. All right, so just to give you a survey of what Augustine is doing with this idea of will, right, of free will, why it's so important, Augustine is heavily influenced by uh, Platonism, by this idea that this ultimate good is the highest form of reality, you might say, or is the ultimate reality, rather. It's what sustains all else in reality in existence right and for augustine that good is obviously god right god is the highest good and he ordains all things for good so god cannot in any sense be said be said to create evil evil is not a substance evil is not a created thing that exists out there evil is a falling away from good it's a privation of good it's a non-being rather than a being you could say and the importance of will then is not that we're given this substance evil and the substance good um right and that we choose between them but the sin of adam and eve was precisely that they choose to fall away from the good that they choose what is less good over the best thing right and that 
since then, for Augustine, is the basic problem with the human heart. As I understand Augustine, if Adam and Eve had free will, humanity afterwards, he might continue to use that term, but it's not free in quite the same sense because it retains the traces of that original choice, that original choice to fall away from the will. This is the idea of sin. It's a disordered choice, or for Augustine, love is the action of the will. Hence, our loves are disordered, right? Our loves take us to the wrong places, and we continually choose the less good over the best thing. And that is among the most serious uh, disorderings of the created order of God's plan for humanity that there can be. Yeah, that's interesting because it goes, it kind of ties into the very first, like with Adam and Eve, it ties into the very first sin being that of pride. And this, and this, the, the, the sin wasn't, they that they were, that like Eve was eating the, the fruit because she, she, because God told her not to, but it was this temptation that you can be, you can become like, like God. That's really good because, again, we have to understand that if we're thinking in platonic terms as well, you have the sort of ordering, proper ordering of creation, things coming down from God, the ultimate good, and to usurp one's spot, right? To to try and aim, uh, to try and make oneself what one is not, to try and become as gods, as the Genesis text says, is a very dangerous. Um, it's not an it's not an isolated act. It ties into the whole way the universe is ordered and it's disruptive and it's a choosing again of that which is not good or less good over that which is good. It's a choosing of that privation, which is evil. Um, this is a really over, over, over good. Yes. Sorry. Um, this was a, it, this ties into a really interesting podcast I was listening to recently, but it was a man's conversion. Is this one or no? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not. It was not in fact to this podcast, but it was a man's conversion story. And he was talking about when he, he started with, with atheism and then he got like really into physics. And finally he got into like, for all Columbia students have to take FROSI. He got into like, like this sort of like these quantum ideas where like uncertainty principles. And he, he was like, okay, well there has to be something some sort of energy something beyond just math and so that led him into a lot of like new age new age thinking and it wasn't until he he got really into this and it wasn't until he was um talking with a friend about it where his friend's like yeah he's like he's like he's like and then we become like gods and like he 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 talked about this speed like that was like what he like that was like the definite principle where he was like this is obviously not right he's like because i had never i had never verbalized it to myself like 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 this whole like controlling the the um the energy flow of the universe um <laughs> and like a lot of these these new age like this new age principles he's like he's like i knew that wasn't right but it's interesting because that that human tendency to want control to want power um that and and not to just be content with the love of god i think that that i mean that goes back straight to straight to adam and eve and to um free will and pride um in genesis speaking of energy i mean we at least <clears throat> people that i know throw around this kind of basic assumption that evil is the privation of good and that kind of thing and i definitely agree with that but sometimes i wonder what what exactly we might mean like i don't think it's as clear as we sometimes say it is so for example how ought we to know that or by what reason do we know that evil is the privation of good and it's not just the other way around 
that when we do something good, it's just we're not doing something evil? That's a good question. I think you would say uh, the example Augustine might fall back on. You know, I have not come up with my entire definition of good and evil in the whole universe just yet. But uh, I think that... Come on, <laughs> snappy. I think You've had four years of Columbia yeah, education. Right? <laughs> I think that what Augustine might say, because for him, goodness is so deeply bound up with being. Right. That in the sense that darkness is not a substance so much as it is the absence of light. That nothing is not a substance so much it is the, as it is the absence of something. Um, since all being is good by virtue of it being being, right, if that makes sense, then a falling away from that is uh, going to be not only evil or less good, but also less real. And so I'm not sure that fully answers your question. I'm just trying to draw out some of the nuances of the framework at play here. But for Augustine, as a you know someone heavily influenced by Platonism, reality and goodness are going to be closely bound together, and so yeah, the the idea that good is somehow a privation of evil would not make sense to him because for him the fundamental nature of reality is not evil but rather good. So. And what traces do we have? What what could we say to someone who might not take Genesis as their starting point? Right, like a Platonist, for example that the the fundamental tilt or substance of the universe is good um what could we point to and and yeah because i think there is something really attractive in those moments of goodness where like this is real and being and definitely agree with it but i'm just i struggle to communicate it um especially with people who don't you know uh say and you know and and it was very good, uh, and God created the sun and the moon, it was good. Um, so, especially because there are so many people, I think nowadays it's, it's a big struggle, to see the, the world as fundamentally good, with all the like tragedy, um, with all the turmoil. It's harder and harder. Um, not to say that it was ever easy, I mean, like, uh, St. Augustine is writing in like a time of great turmoil, so it's definitely not easy for him to see that the tilt of the world is fundamentally good, and we see his own struggle to recognize his own... Um, his own goodness in confessions, for example. There might be a couple ways at that question. First, I, to clarify, one need not accept Augustine's definition of evil as a privation of good in order to be a Christian or anything like that. It might fit into the Christian framework rather well. It might lend itself to a more rigorous way of thinking about Christian you know, metaphysics, but uh, it's by no means something that... Um, essential one might get to it eventually but it's not necessarily uh, as you can see we're trying to hash it out here it's not in the creeds which we discussed last semester and there's a whole slate of episodes on that if you're they're if great you're great plug <laughs> great plug artist here nice but uh, to go back to your question i think one reason why in terms of context of augustine's own life why he might embrace this definition of evil as you know just being less real or falling away from the basic goodness of reality is because he's coming from uh, Manichaeism, right? He's coming from a philosophy of religion, rather, that is radically dualistic, right. uh, that believes in good and evil as two eternal forces. Kind of are, like Star Wars. That are continuously battling each other. And he comes out of that, and he's very disillusioned with that. And so that might lend itself a little bit to how forcefully he states that evil has no real existence. Um, but to your question... 
it's tricky. It really is tricky to talk to someone who sees you know so the existence of suffering and evil and to say no it's all good something like that right mm-hmm. where the christian cannot deny um sin's real effects on damaging creation right uh this is from mere christianity but c.s lewis writing against you know pantheism which might say you know look at the you know the cells in a cancer you know in a cancerous tumor those are good too and he says the christian response should be that's damned nonsense and he's like that's not frivolous swearing it is like actually um serious to say that to make that sort of statement about creation to make that sort of statement about rather the perversion of creation that is a result of sin is in a very real sense damned it goes against what creation was meant to be so the christian really needs to balance two things a basic affirmation of the goodness of creation Uh, this comes up in genesis a lot of christians would point even to the incarnation of christ as a sort of reaffirmation of creation is not bad. Creation is not something God hangs aloof from. God enters it and redeems it. But also a real acknowledgement that there is wickedness and there is evil in this world. We will get to the city of God again, but I do actually want to, <laughs> I, I do think I did not quite answer Joel's question. I'm really curious about it. Maybe Joel, you even have thoughts on it. How do we point someone to this idea that creation itself is good, especially if they're not starting with the presuppositions of Genesis or of the New Testament. I don't know if I have a good answer to that question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I tend to think that in evangelism more generally, we often should lead with beauty. Um, and I think when uh, beauty has a way of softening hearts and opening them up in a really beautiful way. (laughs) Um, But I do think that when we see something good, right, whether that's a beautiful life, a beautiful act, a beautiful painting, beautiful church, whatever, right, beauty can take all sorts of different instantiations um, to be platonic about it. Um, But when we see that, right, there's something in our hearts um, and how that's distinguished from the mind, still working that out. But, but something in our hearts that St. Augustine would say allows us to rest even for a moment, right? The restless heart that's always longing for God. Um, and so when we encounter beauty, because it's so bound up in the reality of God, our hearts rest for just a moment. And there's this firm understanding that this must be substantial being, goodness. It would be very difficult for us naturally to look. It would be very contrary to human nature to look at moments of extreme evil. You look at the most evil acts, the most evil lives, and say that this is reality and not something to be condemned or strayed away from. Again, not a super satisfying, reasonable answer, but that's about as far as I've come. Yeah, this idea of Defending the goodness of creation is very interesting, and uh, it does accord very well with basic human instincts, I would say, but uh, maybe... But I think as those human instincts become more and more lost in modern sense of the world, right, this desire in a kind of Gnostic way to alleviate ourselves from reality, um, kind of physical reality as a last authority, which must be thwarted, um, not loved and redeemed... Um, it's more difficult for people to see that than perhaps it was at 
and even in St. Augustine's time. Right. It's very closely bound up to the affirmation even of the goodness of humanity as a part of creation, right. too, because you'll either, uh, you can also swing to another extreme where it's the affirmation of the goodness of all creation, except apparently humanity as right. well. And and so... Things I think you see both of a lot. Both of. Okay, that's very good. And I do think a lot of people in this time have thought, you know, it's the city of God is very relevant, thinking on this sort of a large scale about right. the... Um, questions of divine sovereignty, questions of a philosophy of history, how Christians live in this cultural moment, how we interact with these questions. Uh, this is, you know, just as relevant as ever. We had to get back to something we were saying earlier, Madeline, I think you brought it up, that Augustine pinpoints the sin of Adam and Eve as that of pride, that of essentially asserting the self over other things uh, beyond its place, right, in 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 creation right pride um i think i think you can see that um through all areas of human life though like even like as children i think you see like even even little kids they want their way um and i think grow part of growing not not necessarily growing up but growing in growing in love is learning to trust god and not and realize that we don't necessarily know what's best. In fact, we usually don't. And what you pointed out there, pride, right, uh, coming you know, from even very early in, in life. Augustine is very big on that in the Confessions. You might read and be weirded out by, you know, he tries to remember back to his very earliest you know, childhood and what he did back then. And he's like, I was so bad. And, you know, that's, you, you might say, you know, that's just what kids do. But uh, might be a parent. Thank you, Joel. Um, <laughs> yeah. I hope that joke will bear much fruit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. With Joel's nascent interest in puns over here, uh, we'll <laughs> we'll get back to the podcast on the city of God, <laughs> where this question of pride uh, also is also a question of disordered loves. Uh, a very famous phrase attributed to Augustine is um, man curved in on himself, recurvatus in se, right? The loves that were meant to be directed outward toward God and toward others end up just being reflected back toward us. Um, we demand our way. And this is not just an individual question, an individual problem of sin, but it's essential to membership in, you know, the city of God or in the earthly city. There's actually a quote specifically on the connection of love to these two cities. Madeline, do you have that? Yes, I think I actually was able to find like a, a single a single quote on this um, passage. But this is um, this is page um, five ninety three for those who are following along with the Columbia translation. But um, we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. And so, um, here, here, um, in fact, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. And I think that that ties back into the, the first sin, the sin of pride, is that, um, is that in, like, um, if we try to find our glory in, in the, um, on this earth and whether that was in ancient Rome or in, um, our cities or our, our structures today, I think that that's always going to be lacking. And, um, if we, if we instead build our hopes on the, the heavenly city, 
and uh, if we find our highest glory in God, I think that there's there's a lot more. There's just a lot more there. Yeah, very Augustinian insight is that we were made to love more and glory in more than this world has to provide. And that when we take finite things as the objects of our, so to speak, our concentrated love or our worship, they become twisted. They become shadows of what they were meant to be, Uh, whether that's a city, whether that's the self, whether that's you know, in our modern day, any other, you know, marker of identity of, uh, you know, or possessions or whatever it might be. But for Augustine, there is, when we rightly order our loves, when we are awakened to see where those loves must be directed, when we find the right object of those loves, to go back to the quote Joel referenced earlier from the Confessions, our restless hearts finally find rest. There's a peace that comes from that. And that's actually how the city of God moves toward a close in, in its last couple books. It really talks about this question of peace. This idea that in the city of God, into moving into eternity, there will be a peace that cannot be provided by the, by the earthly city. And I think that's a very potent and I think it's a very powerful idea. That's another longing that's in our hearts from being very young, uh, aside from wanting our own way, is this this longing for, for love and for that peace. Um, and I think, I mean, as at least my professor pointed out, that in these, in a, in a lot of these texts, like even war is done to, to find um, peace. And, or at least with the end goal of obtaining that, even if it's flawed in its conception. And yeah, ultimately people are people are made for love and we're not we're not necessarily going to find that here. Um, even if we are blessed with family or friends um, that do care for us a lot. I mean it's pretty clear how pride relates into this sense of peace and love and why it's so inimical to it. We could imagine perhaps the other sins um, being able in some ways to be satiated if you had perhaps infinite food in an eternal city of God. Um, you know, gluttony may not, uh, you, gluttony wouldn't put you in a conflict with anyone else. You'd be fine because you have the infinite amount of food um, or whatever it is, right? Infinite amount of rest. But there's something about pride that is competitive by its very nature. Um, if you have infinite possessions, but your neighbor has infinite possessions, then you want infinitely more possessions than him, right? Um, and so there's constant competition, constant uh, um, war, constant strife in this non-peaceful way. Um, and that's why I think like we see that, that peace is so essential, um, perhaps now more than ever, um, but especially in the Beatitudes, right? For those, they will inherit the kingdom of God, I believe. But they are they are included in uh, in that broader framework of inheriting the kingdom. This is how people will live in the kingdom of God. We talked about the Sermon on the Mount in the last episode, and so that's a really nice way to tie that in. There's a lot more we could talk about. This is a very big book. Madeline was referencing, yeah, the version we use for Columbia is like the thick penguin edition that we've got like... Uh, 
I don't know how thick that is, but it's a couple inches. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot to talk about. This is a very, very influential piece, a uh, very, very influential work of understanding these notions of Christian theology, of what we take from the classical world, of how we think about classical foundations of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, how we tie this all together into a coherent framework for thinking about ourselves and about society. This has been really influential, and uh, we might see traces of that influence as we continue uh, reading the other texts in the CC curriculum. As we were talking, a couple other C.S. Lewis quotes came to mind, but we are called Behold the Lion and not Behold the Lewis. So <laughs> I think... Uh, it's maybe important. we'll do a Behold the Witch episode, and then maybe a Behold the Wardrobe later okay, on. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Joel. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, what it's worth noting that Lewis himself, too, a lot of his insights are very Augustinian in nature. Uh, his own conversion journey was marked in a similar way by the sorts of restlessness and dissatisfaction that we see in Augustine's own life, and that in the City of God are kind of formulated into a broader theory of what it means to live in society and expectation of a greater hope and of a heavenly city. I think we'll wrap it up there. Any closing thoughts from you guys? I think that a good reminder um, that I was a big takeaway for me from this book was um, obviously I don't have to understand everything Augustine says in his this 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 tome to to um, appreciate that even when like our present world can seem kind of crazy as I'm sure ancient Rome did, um, we can find a lot of peace in knowing that um, that God loves us and ultimately all we can do is strive to follow him and to take, to take those steps day by day. And we don't necessarily have to understand everything that's going on um, to be able to do that. And I think that there's, I find a lot of hope in that. I mean, I think we see in both of St. Augustine's works the importance of restlessness. And I think oftentimes we can live our whole lives pushing against the restlessness in our heart, ignoring it, drowning it out with pleasures or whatever it is. And so I hope that all of us and all of our listeners during college can find ways to trace that, to chase that restlessness, to see where it leads them. Um, because ultimately, that restlessness will lead them to one place three persons, um, and so to, to not ignore it, to know that they were and to say, take comfort in the fact that they were made for more and they were, and they're born to desire more and to chase all of that with, with all the, the joys and sorrows, the peace and conflict that comes along its way. I'm thankful neither of you guys jumped in with an all roads lead to Rome idea here, but uh, not yet. <laughs> but uh, we'll save that for later. Yeah, I'll save that for another <laughs> for another episode. But yeah, there's a lot to take away. Uh, I love that idea of you know not fleeing or trying to drown out the restlessness, but pursuing it. This idea too that Augustine shares with us that even if we don't share you know his exact metaphysical presuppositions about the nature of reality, what we can at least take away, and that's very valuable, I think, in his, uh, in his writing, is that even in the turmoil of history, as Madeline said, we can trust that God reigns, that he orders things for good, and that evil is in some sense less real, in the sense that in Christ, this whole idea of forgiveness and of resurrection is in some sense an undoing of the evil, a wiping of it away, but also a conquering of it and a greater good arising from it. And I think that's a message of 
of great hope. All right, we'll close it here with the City of God. Thank you for thank you guys for joining today. We'll be back again next week uh, with a discussion of the Quran. So we'll be changing tack a little bit, and we'll uh, we'll meet again then. Thank you.